Happy March the 8th, Adam. It's the day on which, at the time of recording, apparently schools should be reopening their doors to children across the UK. Yes, I imagine that has happened and that once again the podcast isn't full of hostages to fortune in terms of us talking about stuff that looks like it's going to happen when we record and then doesn't. Yes, and I for one am also enjoying the gradual easing of lockdown, worried about whether Trump will get another term in office and about the looming no-deal Brexit. Me too. And if there's one ray of light at the end of the tunnel, it's that, thank God, the virus doesn't seem capable of mutating. Yes, and we can all look forward to Christmas with our families and a temporary suspension of social distancing. But that's not all that's specific and particular to the date, March the 8th. It's also International Women's Day. Yes, it is International Women's Day. And the theme of this year's International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge. Um, As the website tells us, a challenged world is an alert world. Individually, we're all responsible for our own thoughts and actions all day, every day. So stay challenged, stay alert, think some thoughts and settle down for the satirical celebration of International Women's Day 2021. Let the music play. When's International Men's Day, huh? Welcome, one and all, to the Smith & War special episode of Talk About Satire on International Women's Day. Now, Adam, you asked a very, very silly, stupid question just now, but it's one we might as well address. International Men's Day 2021 is on the 19th of November, as it is every year. And also from the 20th of November through to March the 7th and March the 9th through to November the 18th, inclusive. I'm joking, of course. Yes, you're sort of being a bit satirical, both about the men on Twitter who ask the question every year and also about the idea that men still rule the world to that extent, aren't you? Yes, that is what I'm doing, probably. Um, So today, whatever else has happened in the interim between the recording and the release of this episode, it is International Women's Day. And for several reasons, we're going to make that the theme of the whole show. And because there's been a smaller gap than usual, there's no one for us to talk to in this episode. So it's a Smith and War only episode. Indeed. And we've commented before in numerous contexts that satire is often quite a male game. Satirists and those who comment on or analyse satire have often been men. And we've tried to level things up a bit. But to be fair, we've often come back to Pope and Swift and Stuart Lee and Chris Morris and Amando Iannucci and Charlie Brooker and South Park. Yes. So today we're going to spend some time thinking about some female satirists and then we're going to have, if there's time, a bit of fun with some satire of our own. But first, what even is this podcast? This is the podcast Smith and War Talk About Satire, the podcast in which I, Adam James Smith, actually, let's change that, the podcast in which you, Joe War, and I, Adam Smith, talk about the function, future, history and future of satire, seeing as it is International Women's Day. And the form. And we talk about the form of the podcast. And we talk about the form. Yes, yeah. that is correct. Thank you. Thank you for letting me go first. It's for, for one episode only, it's the Warren Smith Talk About Satire podcast. So that's correct. Um, on the website for International Women's Day, the theme of Choose to Challenge is fleshed out a little bit with this statement. So I'm quoting now. We can all choose to challenge and call out gender bias and inequality. We can all choose to seek out and celebrate women's achievements. Collectively, we can all create an inclusive world. From challenge comes change. So let's all choose to challenge. So I think we do hashtag choose to challenge quite often on this podcast. And often, of course, choosing to challenge could conceivably be one way that a lot of satire could be described. But let's also have a go at doing the other thing, uh, seeking out and celebrating women's achievements. Adam, who would you like to seek out and celebrate first? 
I'd like to seek out the poet Mary Lieper. Okay, have you found her? Here she is. Yeah, so... <laughs> that was good seeking, well done, that was quick. Yeah, so... She's she's in the 18th century, I'm afraid. So okay. Mary Lieper. Yeah, so that's the example that I, I want to talk about. Mary Lieper is a poet. I, there's quite a lot of options because I wanted to talk about a woman in the 18th century who did satire for the reasons that you just said. Satire is often a way of challenging. People talk about it as being a way of speaking truth to power. So choosing to be a satirist is you are oftentimes choosing to challenge something. Um, so yeah, Mary Lieper, not the most well-known female poet from the 18th century and admittedly there aren't that many to choose from um, but she wrote a poem that I want to talk a little bit about called Essay on Woman in the first half of the 18th century and I just wanted to talk a bit about Mary Lieper because I don't think people talk about her enough so Mary Lieper was a largely self-educated working-class poet alive in the first half of the 18th century and according to her father she began writing quote tolerably at the age of 10 her father recollected that she would often be scribbling, sometimes in rhyme, but that her mother ended up discouraging the writing, requesting that she find herself some, quote, more profitable employment. And actually, she was really lucky. She was quite fortunate in that she ended up with a job working as a kitchen maid for another 18th century women poet, Susanna Jennings, who was a friend of Lady Mary Montague, who's another 18th century women poets. So, I mean, people say they're in, they're, they don't know about any 18th century writers who are women, but there's three just in the space of two sentences. Lady Mary Montague, also a satirist, could have done this whole episode on her because, you know, she wrote, she, she dared to challenge Jonathan Swift on his assumed misogyny, but we can perhaps get into that another time. So Mary Lieper ends up working for Susanna Jennings, who's also a poet, and Jennings actually encouraged Lieper to, to do her writing, to write poetry, and offered her access to her family library. Unfortunately, not all of Mary Lieper's employers were as accommodating as that. So after she finished working for um, Susanna Jennings, she ended up working for Sir Richard Chauncey's family. And he actually sacked her quite quickly for not doing her job because she was writing. So allegedly, she wouldn't even stop. She wouldn't stop writing even when she was working in the kitchen. And in 1784, a long time after she died, an account was published in the Gentleman's Magazine, possibly by Chauncey's son, allegedly describing Chauncey's remembrances of the poet. And according to this piece, Mary Lieper's, quote, fondness for writing verse there displayed itself by her sometimes taking up the pen whilst the jack was still standing and the meat scorching. What's the jack? Something to do with being a servant in the 18th century. Oh, right, okay. So like a servant tool of some kind. Some kind of servant tool. but the Something a servant would have in the old days. Probably, like, just an old days thing, like how you used to have the boot scrapers by the front door or something like that. Yeah, like a boot scraper or a bedpan or a farthing. Like these, it's yeah. an old, olden days thing. And I love that image of her in the kitchen, not not being aware or not paying attention to the fact that the jack was still standing. Um, or that she's overcooking the meat. So she's in the kitchen, she's a maid, that's her job, and she's not doing her job because she's too busy scribbling poems down, which I think is pretty cool, isn't it? So not only was she a woman in the 18th century who was working class and wrote poems, but she also chose to challenge in her poem, Essay on Woman, which is often positioned as a response to Alexander Pope's poem, Essay on Man. So won't talk too much about Alexander Pope's Essay on Man, but what that basically is, is it's 
the word essay in this context doesn't mean essay as in the sort of thing you write at university. Essay means like a consideration of a specific theme in poetry. Um, and what his essay on man is, is it's a contemplative and mildly satirical poem about the hubris of man's attempt to answer existential questions. And it was a success. What Leopold does in her poem is she ruminates on the biggest question affecting women, in her view. And she says the biggest questions relate to the limiting roles and expectations afforded to women in what we might now recognise as being a patriarchal society built on deeply entrenched gender stereotypes. So I've suggested there that Mary Leopold's poem is a response to Pope's poem, or it's positioned as such. And I think that's important context, but also that does annoy me a little bit in anthologies. The Dawn Anthology, God love it. We don't know what we'd do without it. I think it's a good, great thing for teaching. But there is a tendency when you have the women's writing section. So if you have the women's writing section in the early 18th century bit of the Norton Anthology, you've got Mary Leopold and you've got Lady Mary Montague, but they're in a section, which I think is called Battle of the Sexes, where their poems are positioned next to Jonathan Swift's poem and Alexander Pope's poem. So in the anthology, these women poets are only understood in relation to the men that they choose to challenge, which I can see how it happens, but... Yeah. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? How do you handle it? If you're having, if you have a section on women in the Norton Anthology, does anything get to go in there if it's by a woman and it doesn't require any sort of more context than that? In which case you're kind of claiming there's a family resemblance between all those poems just because they're by women. And if the actual context of their writing is a rebuttal to a male poet, then that's significant. But at the same time, it comes at the price of making positioning the women as reactive only to men, even though it seems like in those two instances, they were reactive. Yeah, so I think it would be really bad. You can't rewrite history, Adam. You, you no, can't just pretend history didn't happen. We've got to learn. And it's a good challenge because you're sort of asking me there, like, what is it? What would I like to see? And I wouldn't like to see a section that was just here's loads of women grouped together by virtue just because they're women. When actually what yeah. it is, is just poetry that was written by women. So um, I think that you don't want to ghettoize anyone or exception, like the most important thing about Mary Leopold and Lady Mary Montague is not the fact that they're women, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? And I feel like this is valid to talk about before we get back to the poem, don't you? In the context of it being International Women's Day. Yeah. That, that there is a, a tension there, isn't there? Because on, on what basis do you have a section? Do you, and if you don't have a section that is about women's poetry, does, then that places presumably or ideally more onus on the editors to make sure that they are represented in, in kind of roughly proportionate fashion throughout the anthology. What if that's not possible? I don't, I suppose it depends what the purpose and intention of the women's section is. I mean, I, like, I remember when I was younger saying like, oh, I actually think it's really sexist that in The Guardian there's a women's page, like what, like all the rest of the news isn't for women? And my mum was like, well, no, it's because there are, you know, there will be some stories, some issues that are particularly relevant to women. It's not like the women's page in The Guardian was how to make a nice flapjack and darn your husband's socks. It would be, you know, things about reproductive rights or whatever. And so... So that made sense to me and I understood it. But it's interesting that in some papers, what is clearly intended to be the women's section will be called something like style or like, you know, the, it, in order to avoid the charge of like, oh, you know, we've siloed off the women's bit, they'll, they'll kind of call it you or style or whatever. 
but I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is because you do have to address at some point, don't you, in in eighteenth century studies, like what the position and role and output of women was. But then, do you want to only look at their work? Like you don't put Alexander Pope's essay on man in the man section for thing people who were concerned with man things mm. and the roles of masculinity because man doesn't mean man it means person yeah as so often here yeah yeah and I suppose it's complicated by the fact that these poems are largely about they're about sex and gender and these issues aren't yeah. they so Jonathan Swift's poem is, is potentially an attack on women or at least a performance of femininity. La Lady Mary Montagues is a rebuttal. It's a bit more complicated than that, I think, in the Pope and the upper one, because Pope hasn't sat down and gone, I'm going to write an essay that's all the existential questions that occur to a man. It's just yeah. a poem about existential questions. But then Mary Leopold has made it about sex and gender by saying, but that it's different questions for women. Yeah. Um, and they're a lot more close to home than is there a god it's why do i have no opportunities yeah so she sort of so mary leopold's poem in a potentially interesting way recontextualizes pope's poem and as by virtue of the fact that she's done that he now that poem ends up in a different section of the anthology yeah no it is complicated it's complicated yeah but i think it's you've got to be mindful about these things and i, I think that i don't know i think the worst thing that you could do would be to put every put all the women in a category just because they're women because it perhaps does a disservice to the the things that they're engaging with in the first instance and also takes them out of dialogue with the world that they were having to choose to challenge as well doesn't it and yeah. shall we have a look at this poem anyway let's so, have a look at this poem yeah say on women which is in the north anthology and um, actually now we've talked about it i think probably well positioned in there joe you're a woman would you like to read out some of this poem yeah, shall I, shall I just read some bits? Um, so this is a, an abridged form of, or three three sections I thought kind of summed it up. Yeah, we're not arranging any voices. We'll post the link to the full poem in yeah. the show notes. Yeah. So, all right then, let's have a go. Reading Olden Day's poetry. Woman, a pleasing but a short-lived flower, too soft for business and too weak for power, a wife in bondage or neglected maid, despised if ugly, if fair, betrayed. Tis wealth alone inspires every grace and calls the raptures to her plenteous face. I'm just going to read another section that's slightly longer. Who would be wise that knew Pamphylia's fate, or who be fair and joined to Sylvia's mate? Sylvia, whose cheeks are fresh as early day, as evening mild and sweet as spicy May, and yet that face her partial husband tires, and whose bright eyes that all the world admires? Pamphylia's wit, who does not strive to shun, like death's infection or a dog day's sun? The damsels view her with malignant eyes, the men are vexed to find a nymph so wise, and wisdom only serves to make her know the keen sensation of superior woe. The secret whisper and the listening ear, the scornful eyebrow and the hated sneer, the giddy censures of her babbling kind with thousand ills that greater gentle mind by her are tasted in the first degree. And then just the last bit, whether sunk in avarice or pride, a wanton virgin or a starving bride, or wandering crowds attend her charming tongue, or deemed an idiot ever speaks the wrong, though nature armed us for the growing ill with fraudful cunning and a headstrong will, yet with 10,000 follies to her charge, unhappy woman's but a slave at large. Do you, can you explain what that means? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, it's a fascinating poem, isn't it? And it is. so for me, I think this is a, well, it's a poem about the various double binds in which women find themselves in this society. So due to the expectations of them, the, the gendered expectations of them, we might say now by this society, the roles that are assigned to them, uh, but also the, the sort of extent to which they're educated to believe these things as well. So it's, it's about the mind forged manacles that arise from being indoctrinated in femininity as a way to, and yeah. on all of the contradictions that arise from that when you think about it. So right from the start, the first couple of couplets there, like what is a woman to do? Because if she's, she's too soft for business, but too weak for power. Um, she's pleasing, but a short-lived flower. So she's fine as long as she's young, but once she's past a certain age, she's done. And her options are to either be a wife in bondage. And I mean, that's this is written in the aftermath of the Civil War, which is largely about what freedom and liberty is and what it means to be a slave. So the word bondage there, I think, is, is deliberately evocative of questions surrounding slavery. But it's a, it's a statement of fact. To enter into marriage in the early 18th century and actually well into the 19th century, it's true, isn't it? That you, you would forfeit your legal rights, your civil rights. You couldn't operate in a court of law independently of your husband. Your property becomes his husband. So your options are to literally live in bondage as a wife or be a neglected maid. If you're ugly, you're despised. If you're fair, you're betrayed. Whatever you do, you're wrong, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's like emotional message of this is women can't do right for doing wrong can they if nobody likes them if they're ugly nobody trusts them if they're pretty and then in the second section that I read it it seemed to seem to me to be saying like people will hate you no matter what if you're if, if you're clever it'll all go wrong if you're pretty it'll all go wrong everyone hates you um and the, and particularly she ta she takes care and takes a moment to say it, the women will hate you too the damsels view her with malignant eyes and the men are vexed to find a nymph so wise and being clever not only makes everyone hate you, but it makes you feel it more. You will, you will feel a superior woe because of your, your wisdom and you'll be all too aware of all the, the sneering and the whispering. Yeah. There's loads of great couplets in, in this, but I think that's one of the really powerful ones, isn't it? And wisdom only serves to make her know the keen sensation of superior woe. So it's like, if you think outside of the narrow confines that have been assigned to you because of your gender, it just makes you more depressed. Because yeah. you realise that there is so much more than the things that as, as a woman in this society you're told to cherish. And then the end, I think, is, well, I mean, the end is a fantastic thesis statement, isn't it? <laughs> but it comes back to that idea of, yeah, you can't do right for doing wrong. And actually, when you think about it, women are slaves in this society. I mean, coming out of the Civil War, the definition of a slave and one of the justifications for the Civil War, you know, if I get talking about these things in extremely generalized terms is that to be a slave is to it, you don't have freedom if you are subject to the arbitrary will of another that could be imposed upon you at any time so if you if at any time just because of a whim you are affected then you don't have freedom and that's the situation that she's describing here isn't it so yeah 10,000 follies to to her charge you get blamed for everything but at the end of the day unhappy woman's but a slave at large and I think the, the slavery metaphor is one that persists well through the 19th century isn't it and seems to have been reached for quite readily I think perhaps especially by women writers and poets in in ways that I mean I know there was a lot of controversy about um, Emmeline Pankhurst drawing on the rhetoric and language of slavery 
whatever conclusions we come to about that, it's certainly true that a lot of women writers in the 18th and 19th century grab for this metaphor of, of slavery, isn't it? Perhaps they could have paused to think about whether that was really the, the comparison they wanted to go for. But I think to them, it just meant like, exactly like you say, doesn't it? That if you, if someone else is in charge of you and you have no liberty, then, then you are a slave. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a text that it reminded me of, and it's quite fortuitous that I was reading this again anyway for, for teaching, is Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which, which she wrote decades later. It's the same, it's the same argument, but also that's the slavery connection is there because Mary Wollstonecraft is writing in response to Edmund Burke, who's writing in response to the French Revolution, and the French Revolution is following short upon the American Revolution. All of those revolutions are about freedom and liberty and what it means to be a slave. You know, the American colonists living as slaves because they pay taxation, but they don't got no representation. The French Revolution, people living in an ancient regime. And then she writes Vindication of Rights of Women. And it's the same argument, that, which is that women are not educated, but they are educated to be feminine. And they are educated to, to be sort of weak and subordinate and to be looked at and all of these things. And it's a fantastic, Vindication of Rights of Women is a fantastic piece of writing. And from the off, it's, it's, she sort of says, I'm not talking, you don't say that men and women can't be equal because men are stronger and men do hunting, men do those things because yeah, men have a physical advantage, but that's not what I'm talking about. And she has a line, which is, is something like, not satisfied with their natural physical advantage. Men have then created this system where women are indoctrinated to be subordinate and, and live in ignorance. But I wanted to mention that vindication of rights of women, not just because it's really similar to what Mary Leopold is saying and continues the same arguments, although it's obviously not a piece of satire. Reading it now for the first time in a few years, it was struck me how often Mary Wollstonecraft does strike a satirical pose. Mm -hmm. So there's a quote that I've just picked out here where she says, my own sex, I hope, will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures instead of flattering their fascinating graces and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood and able to stand alone. Like Mary Wollstonecraft doesn't actually want her female readers to forgive her for not patronising them. So yeah. She was saying, what sort of a world do we live in where the expectation is that I would? That is satirical, isn't it? That's irony. Yeah, she does. She does have bits of tone like that, doesn't she? Um, and sort of a, a pleasing peppering of sarcasm and satirical mood throughout that vindication and some of her other writing as well, doesn't she? I think she, I think she was bloody brilliant, Mary Wollstonecraft, and I think somebody should make a statue of her, not to her. What do you yeah. think about that? I think it's not before time, and if they do, they should do a statue that embodies the arguments that she's making. Um, well, and the arguments she was making was basically that, like, she was a couple of inches tall and naked. Well, that was kind of the summary of it all, wasn't it? That's, that was her key point, right? That's what I heard, yeah, yeah. That yeah. she's a small naked lady coming out of a cloud. Um, yeah. But no, she's... <laughs> that statue is fascinating because it, it's a statue that I think is trying to embody what she was about, not who she was, but also is paying homage to her legacies, isn't it? So it's sort of about... Yeah, but it, I mean... I don't get who would read Mary Wollstonecraft and then think the physical essence of that would look like this. No. What, why? Why Why would you? And I don't know. I mean, I know this is like slightly old news now, but it does perplex me that the, the one time you have a statue that is like, ah, but it's not of her, it's to her. Like, there's not, it's not like the statue of Nelson is 
a, a small bronze penis on a cloud that is not of him it's to him <laughs> why do all the men get statues that look basically like them but bigger and shinier and mary wollstonecraft's is a small silver barbie doll with no clothes on i find it odd it is it is odd yeah yeah, maybe maybe it's the first in a series though. Maybe all statues from now on will be about will be two people, not of them. Because yeah. if Mary Wollstonecraft became suddenly problematic, it's mm. you could just have a naked woman statue and that'd be fine. Whereas no one would have to pull that down. I don't know. Naked, tiny naked women are for all time, not just yeah. not just for a season, but for for all time. So yeah. you could, yeah, if she, if Mary Wollstonecraft had to be cancelled, then you're saying you could say, oh no, but it, now it's um, it's a statue to Venus. To who? Venus, the god Venus. Venus. Yeah. Okay. That's all sorted then. So that's my example, Mary Leopold, with a little bit about Mary Wollstonecraft and references to Lady Mary Montague and also Susanna Jennings. Well, that was really lovely. Thank you. So I've, I've taken my, my bit of chat in a, in a dissimilar direction. So I'm going to do that in a moment, but I'm going to introduce my choice with a little bit of song. If you hadn't guessed from that music, my third action is Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, from which we get the, the well-known phrase about there being something nasty in the woodshed, which you heard referenced in that song there by Divine Comedy. So this isn't really a book that's... It, it's not about women and it's not to women it's just by a woman and I think it's really good uh, I mean it has it, elements of satire and also I mean broadly it's comedy with some pastiche bits in and some some satire in it and it's one of my favorite books I've, I've it's kind of although it's called Cold Comfort Farm I find it to be kind of a comfort read because it's it's just so amiable and everything works out nicely in the end and it offers you the opportunity to partake in the delusion of a universe with meaning and tidiness and order which is all very satisfying but yeah for for a satire by a woman I would like to talk please about Stella Gibbons's Cold Comfort Farm published in 1932. It's like a very different kind of podcast this one isn't it? We're, talking all different about books it's like and the stuff. It's the opposite of Room 101, isn't it? It's like, what do you really yeah. like? Yeah. What do you want to get out of Room 101? Yeah. It also, it, there's loads of bits in this text that I that I really enjoy. And it's about a young woman and who is 19, which always surprises me, because I think when I first read it, I thought of her as a grown-up. Um, and her older, married, sensible, established friend is only like 26 or something. And so the main character, Flora Post, lost both parents in the Spanish influenza epidemic, which is 
not not particularly funny, but it's dealt with quickly in the first paragraph. So she needs to find some relatives to sponge off. She wants to go and live with them because she doesn't much care for the idea of working for a living. And she ends up staying with her cousins, the Starcadders, who inhabit Cold Comfort Farm in Sussex. And it's the bits dealing with the farm and dealing with the Starcadders that are the satirical bits, really, isn't it? So it's kind of pastiching sort of D.H. Lawrence, but also sub-D.H. Lawrence rural passions and muck and cows and nature and all the rest of it and and lots of melodrama but all spliced with flora posts eminently sensible calm cool rational take on everything and her desire at all costs to impose some kind of order and tidiness on the whole landscape and every so often she just Stella Gibbons puts in asterisks sort of lyrical bits of writing about blossom and things and she says like but she's there. I've put these in asterisks so that readers who just like to skip the descriptive bits can miss them out. But but I've done them just to show that I can. It's got a brilliant phrase in it, which I would really like the chance to use at some point in my life, which is you're a crashing bounder and I hope your water vols die. So, yeah, I like that. I think one of the appeals of this is the character Flora and her indefatigable desire to impose order and tidiness on things and I realized when I was thinking about it that she kind of reminds me of my PhD supervisor who I think would have so I wanted to mention that in the context of it being International Women's Day and sort of um, pay a little tribute to to her who sadly died a few years ago and I think if my PhD supervisor who was Professor Jane Moody had been in a similar situation on a gotty farm in Sussex somehow people would have found themselves feeling that it was really about time they washed the curtains or got a job or stopped roaming around rolling around in the soup bind I think there is something about Flora Post that reminds me irresistibly of um of Jane but also it's just a book that I've I've loved for a really long time so, yeah there's there's lots of sections I would like to to look at but yeah you've read this recently what did you think I mean I'd never read it until you mentioned that you're going to talk about it on the podcast and I, and I, I have been reading it I think it's just I think it's fantastic <laughs> like I'm so glad to have read it Flora is a very very impressive comedy creation isn't she mm. and it's got that thing going for it as well that I think is true of Salinger and to a some extent Scoop which we both read last summer didn't we by Evelyn Moore which is that, and, and also it's true of this era, um, Woodhouse as well, which is the yeah. dialogue just zings along. Like it, yeah. it's so easy to adapt. And the di- it's the dialogue, the timing. So for example, right at the start of the book, she ends up staying with her friend, Mrs. Smiling, who's also only 20, 26, but it's coming to some money because her racketeering husband has died prematurely. Um, and she, and she, she's desperate to dissuade Flora not to go and live with relatives specifically not on the farm in Sussex and she said you'll be fine just play with some older women in our society you can play bridge you learn loads of games at university Flora says I didn't I don't like games like I I don't like playing games do you know the bit I'm talking about that's the bit I was going to read yeah okay we'll see what you're going to say about that because I think the punchline isn't the thing that Flora says it's Mrs Smiling's reaction but we'll, we'll save that then We'll maybe come back to that. But I mean, so she's an amazing comedy creation. Also, early on when she says, when Mrs. Smiley is saying to her, like, you need to, aren't you worried about meeting a husband? Are you going to need to go to parties to meet the right guy? And she says, she'll find someone who's broadly appropriate and change them. (laughs) 
Like that's her plan is to find someone safe and then mold them to her will. And also, again, it's near the start of the book. I have read more than the start of the book, but there's so many zingers at the start. When when Flora says, why do you do these things to yourself? Why do you put yourself in these situations? Like, why do you make things difficult for yourself? And she says, it's because when I am 53 or so, I would like to write a novel as good as Persuasion, but with a modern setting, of course. For the next 30 years or so, I shall be collecting material for it. If anyone asks me what I work at, I shall say collecting material. No one can object to that. And then from that point on, she keeps referring to when something bad happens or something unfortunate happens, she's like, this would be good material for the novel. And that's a great, that's a great way to live. And also um, interesting that she wants to write like Jane Austen, mm. say is satirical. Yeah, yeah. And she recommends persuasion as well, doesn't she? To the girl on the farm who she wants to sort of start adopting a more sensible and rational approach to life. But yeah, I really like the bit where she's talking about games, partly because it arrives at the point where we sort of get the the key aspects of Flora's character. And I think also partly because it chimes with anyone who ever felt a little bit lost in a PE lesson at school. Shall I just read that bit and then you can say what you were gonna say about it as well. As you say, Mrs. Smiling has said like, well, surely you learn to play games at, at school. And she says, well, first of all, I used to stand quite still and stare at the trees and not think about anything. There were usually some trees about. For most games, you know, I played in the open air and even in the winter, the trees are still there. But I found that people would bump into me. So I had to give up standing still and run like the others. I always ran after the ball because after all, Mary, the ball is important in a game, isn't it? Until I found out they didn't like me doing that because I never got near it or hit it or did whatever you are supposed to do to it. So then I ran away from it instead, but they didn't seem to like that either because apparently people in the audience wondered what I was doing out in the edge of the field all by myself and running away from the ball whenever I saw it coming near me. And then a whole lot of them got at me one day after one of the games was over and told me I was no good. And the games mistress seemed quite worried and asked me if I didn't really care about lacrosse. That was the name of the game. And I said, no, I was afraid I didn't really. And she said it was a pity because my father was so keen and what did I care about? So I said, well, I was not quite sure, but on the whole, I thought I liked having everything very tidy and calm all around me and not being bothered to do things and laughing at the kind of joke other people didn't think at all funny and going for country walks and not being asked to express opinions about things like love and isn't so and so peculiar. I love the, that, the, the specificity, but the strangeness of that as the object of your life. I just like to have everything very tidy and calm about me um, and not play any lacrosse. But so, yeah, what were you going to say about that bit? When she says all of that, <laughs> the next bit is that like you get to the end of the quote and then the narration just goes, Mr. Smiley nodded her approval, but she told Flora that she talked too much. Yeah. Because <laughs> Mr. Smiley doesn't want to talk about anything, really, does she? She just wants to do no. things. I think that's why they're friends, isn't it? And then there's another aspect uh, that I think is is more sort of satirical and uh, perhaps almost more irritable which is there's a character who you might not have encountered yet Mr Mybug who was brilliantly played by Stephen Fry in the 1995 adaptation of this book and Mr Mybug is this sort of irritant who's hanging around Flora all the time and is always trying to sort of bring the question around to sex and so they, they'll go for walks and he'll he'll be just monologuing on about society and then say, my God, look at those rhododendrons. They're so phallic. I, or um, look at that pool. It looks just like a navel and I would love to rip off my clothes and dive into it. And Flora, as you'd expect, finds him sort of absolutely 
intolerable. But there's also a little jab at early 20th century bizarre scholarship of the Brontes. So Mr. Myberg has a theory that Charlotte, Emily and Anne were all fearsome drunkards who didn't write any of the novels at all. In fact, Paul Branwell wrote all of them and had to pretend to be a drunkard so that the pub would sell him the booze that his sister wants. And Flora says like she sort of finds this fairly predictable because she knows there's a bit of a trend amongst literary scholars for claiming that Branwell really wrote Wuthering Heights. And yes, yeah, so he's got this got this theory based on three letters that Branwell wrote to his aunt in the 1840s. And from these, he's um, he's inferred that he actually wrote Wuthering Heights. And I think Stella Gibbons is is clearly sort of aware of some of the more batshit claims that were coming out about the Brontes in the early 20th century. So she says, but do the letters, inquired Flora, who was fascinated by this recital, actually say that he is writing Wuthering Heights? Of course not, retorted Mr. Myberg. Look at the question as a psychologist would. Here is a man working 15 hours a day on a stupendous masterpiece which absorbs almost all his energy. He will scarcely spare the time to eat or sleep. He's like a dynamo driving itself on its own demonic vitality. Every scrap of his being is concentrated on finishing Wuthering Heights. With what little energy he has left, he writes to an old aunt in Ireland. Now I ask you, would you expect him to mention that he was working on Wuthering Heights? Yes, said Flora. And then she says, well, was he was he very fond of his aunt then? And Mr. Mybug says, yes, she was she was the passion of his life. She was the eternal, unsolvable and unfindable ex. But then it transpires that uh, we haven't seen any of her letters to him and his letters to her are... Little masterpieces of repressed passion, full of tender little questions. He asks her, how is her rheumatism? Has her cat Toby recovered from the fever? What is the weather like at Derry Down Derry? Um, At Howarth it is not so good. How is cousin Martha? And what a picture we get of cousin Martha in those simple words. A raw Irish chit, high cheekboned with limp black hair and clear blood in her lips. I think... The way that it becomes apparent to us how much ridiculous theorising Mr. Mybug has got out of this sort of letter that asks how Cousin Martha is and builds it into a theory about how Branwell wrote um, Wuthering Heights is just just brilliant. Does your audition audition begin with a letter to someone called Anthony Pookworthy, Esquire? Yeah, my dear Tony, yeah. Yeah, because I mean that, the first time I read, when I started reading that I thought it was real. Because she's it's Stella Gibbons writing to someone called Anthony Pookworthy to say that in the drudge of her career as a journalist, where she says life is nasty, brutish, and short. Do you know where that's a quote from? Nasty I do. Thing. I can't think. It's from Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, where he says life yeah. without political authority in natural state will be nasty, brutish, and short. So she's got, read some good stuff. Um, mm. But yeah, she's last like journalist. The only thing that sort of kept her going is reading his books, and. She thinks of his books as great literature, but she doesn't think of her vulgar writing as a journalist to be literature at all. And she's written this book as a tribute to him to pay the debt that she owes him for all the years she's read his books. But she's so, she wants to apologise because it's the book is funny and she knows that his books aren't funny and she describes them. She says, you know, for your books are not ellipsis dot 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 funny. They are records of intense spiritual struggle staged in the wild setting of mere Berg or Fenn. Your characters are ageless and elemental beings tossed like straws in the seas of passion. You paint nature at her rawest, in man and in landscapes. The only beauty 
that lights your pages is the grave piece of fulfilled passion and the ripe humor that lies over your minor characters like a mellow light. And she goes on, but go on, you do so many things, but you're not funny. So she's written this book as a tribute to him, but she's aware that it that her book is funny. So she says, as, as a journalist, you can't always tell the difference between when a sentence is literature or whether it's just sheer flapperdoodle. And for this reason, she adopted the method of marking the finer passages with one, two or three stars. And that's what you were talking about, isn't it? That she's yeah. But I mean, I don't think that this man is real. I don't think, I, I'll no. look at it very briefly. I think Anthony Pookworthy is the personification of all the things that she's satirizing, isn't he? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. So I've, I've seen the 1995 BBC adaptation of this, which is, is really lovely. Um, Flora's played by Kate Beckinsale, and as I say, Stephen Fry's in it. The one thing I think they did that was a bit weird and doesn't work is that they have it that it's Flora who's writing the really lyrical bits. So it will it will all be like funny stuff. And then she'll kind of lean against a fence and take her pen out and write like the the pellucid light of the late afternoon um, flitted in lambent shadows. Um, but that is not what Flora would. Flora's trying to write persuasion, isn't she? She's not trying to write this sort of rural rusticy no um, specifies that she's not going to start writing a novel until she's 53. Mm. So. do you know who plays um, mrs smiling in that adaptation alex kingston no joanna lumley but in the 1995 joanna lumley would have still been pretty like a lot older than 19 wouldn't she older than 26 yeah older than 26 yeah she what she was yeah um so there, there there's a bit of facts for you but yes i just basically want to recommend this novel as um, a kind of pleasant satire by a woman that is also really clever and and satisfying and um, and a good good old satirical read and if you don't agree you're a crashing bounder and I hope your water bills die. <laughs> enjoyed talking to you today and doing some talking myself what did what did you think I really enjoyed talking to you today Joe, and talking to you and myself also I mean I thought that was a really enjoyable International Women's Day episode I know I've already said this in the podcast but I can't if nothing else comes of this episode other than the fact that I have now started reading Cold Comfort Farm I can't tell you how much how enriching that's been I absolutely loved it I think it's fantastic it's a good lockdown read and a good read generally isn't it so I would recommend that to anyone but I think that's kind of all we've all we've got time for except we're going to have time for something else after the theme music aren't we yeah so there's a special treat for dedicated listeners if they want to hang on after the theme tune which is broadly thematically aligned with the theme of international women's day but as yeah. perhaps some might it's maybe more strongly aligned with the theme of mucking about it is yes yeah. so if you want to stick around for some mucking about Keep listening after the music when the music's played. But if you are leaving us now, please do let us know if you're aware of the podcast, engage with the podcast, enjoyed the podcast. You don't have to tell us if you didn't enjoy the podcast. How can people do that, Joe? Could email us at satinomore um, at gmail.com. They could follow us on Twitter and contact us on Twitter at satinomore or even follow us on the gram at talkaboutsatire. Or, or you could do all three, any two or none, whatever combination works for you is absolutely fine. Yep. And if you are feeling generous and you've got the time and you're in a good mood and you liked the podcast, you can also rate and review us 
uh, you know, on your podcast platform of choice. Yeah, and just tell your friends. <laughs> yeah, tell your friends about us, as Batman once said. So um, that's the end of the podcast. Sit up. Shut up! And eat my satire. Bye! Goodbye, listeners. Happy International Women's Day. Goodbye. Very satirical. For those of you who've hung around for a little extra treat, it's time for a little gear change, isn't it? I think it's not unheard of for podcasters to talk about their dreams. And whilst most of my dreams at the moment seem to be either about massive tsunamis or rooms full of people, and I suddenly realise they're too close and they're not wearing masks, you had an interesting dream recently, didn't you? Do you want to lay your psyche bare as a quick introduction to this bit? Yeah, I had a dream where I was on a bus going between two villages um, and then an old woman attacked me. So she sort of turned around, she started calling me names, she started hitting me, trying to stab me with knives. She was and choosing to challenge us. <laughs> she was. She was. Um, so I shrunk away from her and hid at the back of the bus where there was a little girl um, sat just on her own. It looked like she was about five. But she said, do you know about the walk-ins? Do you know what a walk-in is? It's the, the walk-ins are in her, basically. So something had possessed her. She was going rabid. And just she didn't just attack me. She was attacking everyone on the bus. And this little girl was like, don't you know, it's because of the walk-ins. So I woke up and later in the day told you about the dream. And uh, your reaction was that, well, what did you... Yes, when I heard about that dream, I just thought it sounded like nothing so much as a Stephen King plot. And I like reading Stephen King's novels. I've read lots of them over the years. And this just kind of evolved in spare time into a sort of satirical parody fanfic game that I enjoyed. I mean, what you're sort of doing is you're performing the criti- performing a critique on Stephen King in the same manner that Stella Gibbons is critiquing the genre that comes to be personified by Anthony Pookworthy, aren't you? And uh, although it's clearly a loving homage, you are needling at some of his... <laughs> What would you yeah. have to describe them? You're needling at some of Stephen King's biases or assumptions, particularly. Sort of, of, and, his, and some of his literary tics. And mm. yes, some of the sort of things that creep into his work that I don't think he necessarily knows are in his work. And I haven't, haven't got through all of them yet. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know it's coming. And one of the things that it does get at is his representation of women and adolescents yeah. in particular. Yeah, so if you don't like Stephen King and you don't like self-indulgent podcasters writing um, silly stuff, turn off now, that's absolutely fine. But if, constant listener, you're in the mood to be chilled and terrified and perhaps even amused, then stay tuned. Be warned, this is a story so horrifying it may be dangerous to your health. Turn off all the lights, hide behind the sofa and check under your bed before you go to sleep tonight. It's time for the walk-ins. The walk-ins. Man of Stone, Maine, New England, 6.37am. Hey there, Allie. You want to maybe wake up right about now? You feel like maybe opening up those cute little blue eyes? Come on, Allie, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid I might just walk? Alison McDonald sat bolt upright in bed. She'd been dreaming of Twinkies and Oreos and her dad taking her to the Tri-County Fair and... Of me, baby. You were dreaming of me. 
and then the hookaduck had turned bad somehow and everything had changed and instead of being at the fair she was in her third grade classroom doing math and pledging allegiance to the to the walk-ins kiddo you gotta let me in honey child come on all i want to do is eat your brains up and walk around in your hot little body it's been so long, Allie. It's been so long. I've been moldering in the ground, in the deep, dark earth. She shook her head and threw back the bedclothes. Walking to the bathroom, her pert teenage breasts bobbed up and down inside her nightie that Mom had bought her in Mason's last year. Just a dumbass dream. Just a haunter, as her friend Bobby Joe called them. She looked in the mirror. Not half bad, Elster. Not half bad at all. You got it going on, honey. Those blue eyes and that blonde hair, the 125-pound bod. Oh, hell yeah, you're looking good. Allie didn't turn around once while she smiled at herself in the mirror. If she had, she might just have noticed something. Something dark and small that stank like the grave and like her dog when he'd been digging and like her baby brother Lewis's poopy diapers all at once slither behind the laundry hamper. But Ali didn't turn around. By the end of the day, when something that was the shape of Ali but contained all the demons of hell had savaged three police officers and torn Lewis's throat out, she might have thought again. But Alison Elizabeth Henderson MacDonald was nowhere on this earth by that time, of course. Fuck, that's scary. Man of Stone, 11.40am. Kevin Singh chomped another exedrine, his third since getting up, but hey, who was counting? Not Kevin and not his wife, that was for darn sure. And you, you could bet your bottom-ass two-bit copper-bottom dollar on that, as his dad had been accustomed to saying. The morning was going badly. He couldn't find a way to wrap up the plot he'd painstakingly set up in his newest would-be novel, The Checkouts, and his goddamn bitch of an agent would be on his back and up his ass about that before the sun was over the yard arm. Oh, hell yes, she would. Betsy Malone Maguire was a fearsome woman in her late 50s, never married, and sure as shit don't smell like Chanel number no- no. 5. Another charming phrase from Papa Singh there. Thanks, Daddy-o. Oh, and say hey, and by the way, Pops, why did you used to beat me all the time? Uptight, dried up, frigid as a mill pond in winter and colder than a witch's tit, as Harry Singh would have put it. Old Betsy didn't take no for an answer, and she sure had no time for faggot writers in Maine who didn't meet their deadlines. He'd called her on his cell last night. Hey, Bets, how you doing? Listen, I don't think I'm going to be able to get the copy to you by tomorrow. Like, Ava's been sick and it's kind of taken up all my time lately, so... Mr. Singh, may I remind you that you signed a contract with us in June 05 to deliver all your second and subsequent manuscripts to us on the date stated. You cannot expect to coast on the success of Harry forever, Mr. Singh. The agency is here to ensure your continued success as author of mainstream gothic and horror to appeal to the American middle market. And Mr. Singh, I have to tell you that the story of a lonely misfit adolescent boy who ruins his high school prom by ejaculating all over the popular kids, while popular enough in its day, is not going to be paying your pension or your kids' college fees anytime soon. So I would very strongly recommend, Mr. Singh, that you get the copy to us as per your contract, STAT! Kevin recalled the conversation as he absentmindedly chomped another exedrine. Woman needed a goddamn man, and that was the truth. If Betsy weren't dried up and cobwebbed down below, maybe she'd have a little more empathy with her clients. And that, as Mr. Singh Sr. would have said, was the rooting tooting apple pie truth of the matter. The heavy door to his study swung open and Amy popped her head round it. A lean and pretty ex-cheerleader, even after three pregnancies, Amy had kept her figure admirably well. 
even in jeans and a sweater with baby sick on its shoulder, she was still sexy as hell, her golden hair tumbling over her shoulders, her hips now more accustomed to supporting the saggy weight of damply diapered toddlers than writhing in sync to the cheerleading chants of her youth at the Lincoln County High School where they'd met. Kevin had been a bookish type, though well enough liked by all the cliques. Amy was Miss Popularity though, beloved of jocks and other people alike. He could hardly believe it when she'd asked him for a date. But then he was a writer. He'd helped her through her SATs, coaching her in algebra, trig and basic literacy. And now, though he said it himself, he was pleased with his pupil, who had gone on to birth his three blonde children in rapid succession, while remaining attractive, biddable, supportive of his career, and in broad agreement with his entitlement to remain the most important person in the household. Kev, honey, I'm sorry to bother you while you're writing, but Avi just threw up three times. I was loading the Maytag, which is obviously in the basement, and she just started in. I'm worried, Kev, I'm really worried this time. Kevin sighed and thought unthinkable thoughts about whiskey. Oh, hell yeah, a nice big slug of Jack. That would make all this go away now, wouldn't it, just? But Ava was the apple of his eye, and the sight of her forlornly clutching at her mommy's calf and whimpering broke his heart. Fuck you, Bets, you shriveled hag. This is my family. Hey, what's up, baby, baby? Did you puke on Mama's laundry? Now why don't you come and sit on my knee and tell me all about it? Ava ran across the study to climb on her daddy's knee. She loved Mummy, but Daddy was her hero, her saviour, her king. Nuzzling into his arms, and he might add getting snot all over his Sears sweater that had got, cost the better part of 200 bucks, by the way, she buried her head in his neck and gulped through her sobs. It's the walk-ins, Dada. The walk-ins are in a basement and they're gonna get me. Ava's scared, Dada. Ava real scared. Kevin sighed heavily and sat his daughter upright, looking into her tearful eyes. Now listen, baby, this has to stop. Amy, why didn't you tell me it was this crap? Uh, sorry, Amy, this nonsense all over again. Ava, I want you to look at me. There's no Warkeens. There's no such thing as Warkeens. It's just a silly story that Donnie McGonagall told you at kindergarten, and that's not real. This is silly, Avi, and it has to stop. Now, I want you to say to me, there's no such thing as Warkeens, okay? But, Daddy, there are. I seen him, Daddy. They're gonna get you and Mommy and me and Kevin Jr. and Maxie. They are. Kevin's patience was ebbing fast. Ava, now you listen to me. Stop crying, damn it. There are no such thing as walkings. Now be a good girl and go with mummy and watch the cartoons. Or do some drawing. Or make a goddamn snowman, but leave me to my writing. Say it, Ava. I need you to say it. There are no walkings. There's no walkings. That's daddy's good girl. Now run along and maybe you'll get some candy later. Ava ran back to the safety of her mother's arms. She didn't like cross daddy. Cross Daddy was bad, and she knew when Daddy was cross. That was because Cross Daddy's own Daddy, Harry Seen, was in Daddy's head, making him mean and drink the bad brown drink. She didn't know how she knew, but she did know. Deep down in the same place, she knew the Walkings were real as anything, real as Donny McGonagall, real as Mommy, real as Barney the Purple Dinosaur. But Cross Daddy never listened because she knew he needed to do his writing. Kevin popped eight more exodrin into his mouth, barely noticing he'd done so. Damn Amy for interrupting his flow. Warkeens, for Christ's sake. Of course, by nightfall, when his family's throats had all been ripped out and he lay cowering in a culvert, covered in his own shit and piss, he would think very differently. Oh, heckety heck and whoops a daisy, but he'd be sorry, as Daddy-O would have said. But of course, it was far too late by then. Mm -hmm.